This Human Capital Podcast is brought to you by Goalspan, a performance management app that helps you set goals, get real-time feedback, run reviews, and align your workforce around what's most important. With Goalspan, you can integrate with all your favorite HR and payroll apps. To learn more, go to goalspan.com. Hi, I'm Jeff Hunt. Welcome to the Human Capital Podcast. The startup world isn't for the faint of heart. Unfortunately, in some ways, it's kind of like the highway of death. According to the Startup Genome Project, the global average startup failure rate within the first four years is around 90%. This means only about 10% of startups are able to scale or survive beyond the initial stages. If you're working in one of those startups, do you know what's important for you to be aware of and how you can influence these things? If you're a founder or on the executive team of a startup, how can you not only execute winning growth strategies, but also build and preserve a culture that's valuable and human-oriented? Today on the show, I have the pleasure of interviewing Todd Westra. Todd knows a thing or two about startups since he's had several successful exits over his career. He's presently CEO at Withmoku and the Captain's Council. Todd also hosts a popular show called the Growth and Scaling Podcast, which you can find streaming on all platforms. Hey, Todd, welcome to the Human Capital Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be awesome, Jeff. Well, I'm just so excited because I had the opportunity to be on your show, which I'm going to ask you to tell us about. And it was such a fun conversation. And I'm thinking, okay, I got to have Todd on my show because <laughs> you have such an amazing amount of wisdom. And so uh, here you are. No, I appreciate it. And, and I think that it's not that I have amazing amount of wisdom. I think that we just both like the same thing. And so we both think each other are pretty awesome. <laughs> well, you're a, you're a humble guy. So let me tell you, I know your track record and your experience. So we're going to tap into that today. But before oh, we do, you. give us a thumbnail of your career journey. And as you share where you've been and where you're at today, yeah. think about who inspired you most along the way? Was there any one or two people or things totally. or resources that really inspired you? Totally. I totally will. And, and you know, I always tell people that it all started on my paper out. <laughs> I love it. I remember, to be honest, I'm the eighth of nine kids. And one of my older brothers and I, we were really jealous of the kids in the new neighborhood down the street. And we said, Mom, Mom, we want this. We want that. She's like, well, go find a way to earn some money then. And we did. We got a paper out and I learned how to sell to my neighbors. I learned how to work with a supplier. I learned how to do the fulfillment of the delivery. I learned how to collect money at the end of the month and pay an invoice. And those five lessons as an eight-year-old taught me the fundamentals of how business works. <laughs> and to be honest, I did it for five years. And um, as I got older and got a little more mature, I started finding that those principles applied in every industry that I thought to go in. And so in college, I started a business in the golf industry because I love to golf. I then started a business in the audio video industry because I saw my first flat screen TV and thought, oh my gosh, if I could make money doing that all day, who wouldn't want to do that? And I literally went from industry to industry with the anticipation of, hey, I really like stuff in this world. I bet you I can make a business out of it. And I did. So that's a brief snapshot of me. I, I really love, love, love the fact that in our country, 
we are motivated and encouraged to do these things and just go create. And what an exciting thing in life. You literally can generate revenue doing almost anything you like to do if you know how to solve a problem. So that's the key thing, just knowing how to solve a problem. Absolutely. Especially in the gig economy today, people can be scrappy and there's so many opportunities today to make money in different ways that didn't used to exist. So you can just literally have a computer and a connection to the internet and you can make money. Totally. The cool totally. thing. Well, what about inspiration along your career journey? Was there yeah. anybody who inspired you? 100%. Definitely that paper out I did with my brother and my brother's name is John and he's since passed away as an adult and he always inspired me. He always pushed me to just go do what I thought would be best and go do something that would be fun. And so he truly did motivate me. I'd say another factor would be when I was in my 20s, I had a business in the audio video industry and I had a partner, Russ Weiniger, who truly inspired me. We both came from very similar family backgrounds. We both hustled, had paper outs when we were kids. And when we launched our business together, we were together for about 10 years in business. And Russ and I both learned how to take different roles. We're huge advocates of the e-myth. And that book really inspired us to build our org chart, understand what roles we were each taking. And we quickly ran into a lot of success. And that business that we created in 1999 is still in business today. I'm no longer part of it, but it is a still thriving and growing. And, and it's so fun to drive past the building and see that it's still there and still moving. And I don't have to run it. That's even better. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And for listeners out there, I just want to remind you, if you haven't read The E-Myth or The E-Myth Revisited, read oh, yeah. it. It's an amazing book. And a couple takeaways that I remember, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but one yeah. is you learn as a business owner, leader, manager, how to reduce dependency on yourself. So you literally, exactly. there's a playbook in there on how to do that. Exactly. And then the other component is how can we as an organization create the franchise business model? So you figure out what That's works it. and then you replicate that uh, to produce revenue and value for your customers and your employees, right? I mean, you know, you talked about my podcast. It's called the Growth and Scaling Podcast. And right along the lines of what you're doing, it's the entire focus. You know, a business can only grow so big when it's owner dependent. And when the founder has their fingers and everything, you really have a hard time growing past that $5 million or $10 million mark in revenue. And until you learn the principles of e-myth and principles of, you know, there's a lot of people teaching different variations of this, but until you learn how to delegate and empower people with clear instruction of what needs to happen and how they can do it, and then give them flexibility to do it their own way, you're never going to see the growth that the big companies do. And so that's the exciting thing about what we're talking about. And I think that's why we enjoy our conversations together is just that we both know that a business can only grow so far with an owner being exactly. dependent on the owner. That's and right. so how do you facilitate growth? Hire people that are smarter than you, give them some flexibility and say, these are your objectives and then hold them accountable. Exactly. Exactly. For many organizations, the founder, owner, entrepreneur 
principal leader has yeah. difficulty making that transition. So the difference <laughs> between 500,000 and 50 million, they may still be going right. to Ikea and buying the furniture and putting it together. We don't do that anymore. Yes, so, yes. I want to talk about how to make that transition for leaders. But yeah. one of the core aspects of that is actually culture. So when yeah. entrepreneurs start businesses, often the core values are actually representative of the founder, the principal totally. entrepreneur, right? And then it can be preserved as the company grows. But in your opinion, Todd, what are some kind of crucial strategies to be intentional about culture creation and development and sustainment in the midst of rapid growth and change? I love it. This is such a key foundation. In fact, I've launched businesses and I've consulted with businesses. And as I was trying to figure out what kind of consultant do I want to be, this became one of the foundational pieces is when a company launches, oftentimes it's just like, hey, here's a spattering of products I could try and do. And we'll stick with the ones that work and they go and they have fun. And, and usually it's a founder and a few buddies. And and those first few employees are critically important in terms of setting the pace of your culture. Because as you attract people who are driven and motivated to see what you're going to do and how you solve problems, it's exciting and it's fun. And, and no business makes it past launch unless they're solving a problem people want to have solved. And so when you talk about culture and setting the culture, how do we solve this problem? Do we do that? Do we do it ethically? Are we doing this in a way that makes people happy? And that's all up to you as the founder to kind of set the tone. But what I've found in my last three launches, I literally, um, I, I, I determine what problem I want to solve, who I want to solve it for, and then create a product out of that. And when I productize that, I bring in a team. And usually the first people I bring in are people that I say, hey, I know you've solved this problem before. How do we want to solve this problem in a way that identifies us as us? And, and that's been a fun conversation to have because even before we have more than four or five clients, you know, with those first two or three clients, it's like, hey, did it work? Did the solution fix a problem? And if so, what were the things that you liked about it? And what did you not like about your experience with us? And then you sit back and talk to your team and say, okay, first of all, this client was awesome. How do we attract more of this client? Well, this client really likes people who are ethical, who are strong, who maybe they have Christian Judeo values. It doesn't matter. But if you want to work with a certain type of person, you need to understand what motivates them, what values they adhere to. Because if you don't align, you're not going to attract those types of clients or those types of employees. And so if you have a hardworking, accountable environment that you work with in your company, Guess who you're going to attract? People who want to be held accountable, people who like organization, people who like structure, and they like to feel good about what they do. That's a great type of person to attract. It also attracts clients who are that way. And they want to work with somebody who's accountable and trustworthy and can work hard and, and be above board in everything they do. That's how you build an organization is those values set the tone for your employee base, as well as your client base. It's like magic. People see it from a mile away and they are attracted to companies and people that think like they do. I love that. And it's a 
really another way of putting it, and you just said this earlier on in your in, in explaining this, is your differentiators because you are identifying what's most important, which is yep. these small set of core values, these things that you hold near and dear, these behavioral attributes or principles that right. that are critical to your success. So but then those ultimately become your differentiator because your customers see that, your employees see that, your vendors and stakeholders totally. all see it and they're attracted to it, right? Totally. I mean, yeah. who doesn't want to work with someone that makes them better, both on a business level and a personal level? It's for amazing. Sure. For sure. So for organizations that are growing and scaling fast, it seems imperative that they learn their leaders, managers, supervisors, and executives learn how to delegate. And I'm yes. wondering if you have any tips for especially entrepreneurs that have been, that are so used to being hands-on, how yes. they can effectively delegate responsibilities and empower their teams to grow and scale. Right. I would say it all starts with documenting how you just did what you did. A lot of founders will kind of create their business based off of feel, and they feel they can anticipate what a potential client wants and then adapt whatever they set out to do to whatever that client wants. And good founders, they, they can adapt and they can kind of modify, even on the fly, what they need to do to make a client happy. Founders should never expect an employee to do that as well as they can. And I think that's the key thing to recognize is that generally speaking, you're almost never going to have someone who will do it the way that you did it. And so if you built a foundation of a company, don't expect anyone to just insightfully understand, oh, all I've got to do is X, Y, Z, and then we'll have ABC, you know, because they don't see it that way. That's why they're not founders. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? As I've done my podcast and, and I've now interviewed, I think, over 360 founders, I think that's one of the most common challenges I hear about from our guests is that repeatedly, the biggest challenge is people. And how do people not see what I see? And how do I help my people to see what I see so that they can do what I did to build the business? And that's good and it's bad. Um, the good is that you want people to see things the way you do. But the bad thing is a lot of these people will do things better than you if mm -hmm. you clearly identify what the objective is. If you just said, yeah. you know, Jeff, I want to make sure that every one of our clients gets onboarded in a way that makes them feel really good and excited and they'll stick around for two years. That's an objective. If you say, this is exactly how I want them onboarded. I want them to first do this and then do that. And then I want them to do this form and I want them to send us this information. Sometimes that gets in the way of the true objective of, I want them to be super happy and stay with us for, for multiple years. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I do. And so the, the employee gets on this like list of things that you gave them to do and they did a bad job doing that list. And so the clients leave after a month. You just killed it. You just killed Fuck. the whole thing by giving it too much instruction. Yeah, if you can, it seems like if you can connect the dots as an organization between your vision, so where you're actually going as a company right. and why that's inspiring and how you're going to change the world. And then you add in your core values like you were just describing, yeah. Todd, which are these small set of behaviors we hold near and dear. And we hire right. and fire people over those behaviors. 
And then you link their role definition. What's their actual role in helping to achieve that yeah. vision with those core values? And then you get to those objectives, those goals. Then right. they can connect the dots and it makes sense to them, right? Totally. The connecting the dots has to be them, not you. Because exactly. if you want to show them where the dots are so they can say, oh, so you're saying if I do that and then that, we're going to have this outcome. That's exactly that's what right. I'm saying. That's right. That's when, they, that's when they own it. For sure. So regarding this whole topic of delegation and yeah. the tendency to micromanage, what about self-awareness by the leader? So do we need to have yeah. leaders doing 360 degree feedback or being evaluated by the board? Uh, CEOs really being shown where they have blind spots. Is that helpful? And what have you seen work well there? Of course, it's helpful. It's hard to do, though. It and is. being self-aware is another key indicator that if you don't recognize that you're not good at some things, then again, you're going to piss people off. You're going to tick off your employees. You're going to tick off the clients, too. I worked with the founder about a year and a half ago as a fractional CMO. And I was helping him put together an entire launch sequence for a new product he was offering. And he just kept getting in the way. It's so sad to say it, but like he was spoiled deals that we were putting together just because he couldn't get over himself and how cool he thought he was. And, and I was like, they don't care. They just want to know <laughs> how you fix their problem. You know, how do you fix their problem? Most clients really don't care as much about you as you think that they do. But they do care that you're going to help them fix something they don't know how to fix or don't want to fix. And so I think being self-aware for a founder is critically important in that you need to get over yourself. You need to value the people you have to delegate to. If I knew that you were really good at creating this specific widget for my client, I would get out of your way and say, Jeff, this is what I want my client to feel. Can you make that widget do that thing? And then chances are you'd be able to do it great. But if I get in the way and say, you know, like we talked about earlier, hey, first do this, then do that, then do that. I limit your ability to get creative and come up with a better solution. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about how the perspective of mistakes comes into the ability for leaders to delegate. And there's different cultures <laughs> on on oh, yeah. mistakes within organizations, but what's the difference in a company's opportunity to grow and scale based on these different cultural types of how we treat yeah. or mistakes that employees make? Again, I think it's understanding the objective more than understanding the application or the implementation. I've seen this so many times, again, where maybe the company built their first 3 million in revenue doing one thing, but they've been at 3 million in revenue for three years. Maybe you're missing something. That's a red flag. Being profitable is cool, but imagine if with the same amount of effort and getting more creative at how you execute it, you could now be at 10 million in revenue with the same number of employees. Could that happen for you? I think in most cases it can. And I think it comes down to understanding that, you know, in my businesses, I've learned that some of the biggest mistakes we made were the opening of the door to saying, oh my gosh, I don't even want to try and solve that part of our solution. Let me go talk to so-and-so who does this all day long 
sure. and they can fix that particular part of our solution. You know what I mean? And that's when magic starts happening. Because if I'm really good at one part of our execution, but I tried to add too many little variables, that gets a little bit crazy to manage sometimes. But if I say, hey, I already know that Jeff's got a solution that he can plug into mine and I don't have to worry about that part of it. I just know Jeff's going to do it and I'm going to pay him and he's going to be happy. My clients are going to be happier. And, and that's where it comes into a powerful scale-up mode is understanding what parts and pieces you want to keep in-house, what parts you want to outsource a little bit, or are there ways you can just be an affiliate for some solutions that you don't even want to solve? Sure. It's really about leverage, isn't it? So how can we leverage other strategic partners? How can we leverage our value proposition in new ways to make that grow and scale faster? One of the things that's obviously critical in any business is cash and capital and cash flow. And you can have the best idea on the planet that can be transformative worldwide. But if you don't have the cash or the oxygen, as we're going to call it here, uh, you're going to die on the vine. And there's a lot of ways, obviously, to raise capital. You can take the standard sort of seed angel VC route. You can bootstrap. You can go friends and family until you've grown enough. Or you can just grow based on your own revenue growth organically. You've just told me you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of founders yes. and CEOs. What yeah. have you learned from all those interviews to kind of share with our audience? 100%. Again, this comes down to like a foundational concept that every operator needs to think about. And we talked already about kind of the, the guidance system is what I call it, your mission, vision, values. But now we're talking about exit strategy. To what end are you building this business? If it's a lifestyle business and you're okay with it being a lifestyle business, you don't even to think about growth. You just maintain and build and just replace a, a lost customer with a new one. And, yeah. and that's a great thing. I mean, lifestyle businesses, there is nothing wrong with them. And I think I heard a stat, I think like 93% of all businesses are quote unquote lifestyle businesses. They're not necessarily meant to grow and scale. And so that immediately puts this conversation in the lap of, what are you doing with your business? To what end are you growing this thing? And does it matter? I had a lifestyle business with with my partner when we were in our 20s. We didn't know it was a lifestyle business at the time, but sure. it was one. The reason why I say that is it was impossible to grow and scale that business because it needed the founder's touch on every finish. It was a very, very meticulous, customized solution that we were doing, and it needed me or my partner to be involved at the finish of every project. And so we found that we were profitable. And again, this is in the early 2000s, this is, you know, 2000 to 2010. We were more profitable at about four or 5 million in revenue than we were at 10 million in revenue. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> we couldn't figure it out. And sure. we were like, how does this work? We're doing way more revenue, but sure. our, we're not as profitable. Working and harder and making less money, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were seriously, and it was so stupid. And we were like, well, we just expanded to Las Vegas and we just expanded to Jackson Hole. But apparently the cost of us rolling trucks out more often and the cost of us having to be there and the cost, we were less profitable. So we just backtracked. We kept the business at about four or $5 million in revenue. 
And it became a wonderful, wonderful treat for both of us because we weren't as stressed and we didn't have to keep as many people happy and we were making more money. <laughs> and so you got to understand what your business is. Is it, is it even scalable? Know your exit. Does somebody want to acquire this? Or is this just something I'm going to leave to my kids? Or is this something that it is just going to go away at some point when I turn it off? And none of those are the wrong answer. But know what it is so that you don't get your hopes up that, hey, I've heard that if people launch a business and they're successful in 10 years, someone's going to buy it. Because that doesn't mean that, you know? Not at all. Not at all. So if your goal is to sell it, what do I need to do to this business to make it sellable? If your goal is to be acquired, what do I need to do to my business to make it more acquirable? You know, make it look better. Put some lipstick on this thing that you you love, but maybe someone else you know in the industry is going to love this thing if you did a couple of very quick changes. That's where you got to start thinking about how to how to grow and scale it. And those changes, if you really do want to sell, almost always include building it as an asset that is self-sustaining. So it goes back to yes, earlier in our conversation. Always. It's like yes. reduce dependency on the owner and the, the CEO, reduce dependency, and then it's going to yeah. be a lot more attractive to a buyer, right? Most people don't want to buy a founder. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. You're not normal as a founder. Let's face it. <laughs> We are not normal people and nobody wants to buy that problem of shiny object syndrome and all the other things that come with the people like us. Right. And permission to speak freely to all owners, founders yeah. out there. I hate to tell you, but your business is probably worth less than you think it is. Probably. It's a classic probably. case because you're emotionally invested and you've spent so much time and money and blood, sweat, yeah. and tears. And then yeah. when you're ready to sell it and somebody comes in and they say, I'm actually only going to give you four times EBITDA instead of seven or eight <laughs> or 10 times EBITDA, then what? you're, yeah. Exactly. I, it is a, such a true thing. And those rare use cases where you find somebody getting a, a multiple that's two or three times higher than the industry norm, it's because they were smart founders that knew I have a strategic play for my buyer not just a convenient play for my buyer. And the three things that I'd tell every founder that I meet at the foundation of everything, you've got to understand what products are making you money, which ones aren't. Because sometimes we get really passionate about a product. That's our least profitable product. It's an emotional thing. Exactly. It's an emotional tie. Yeah. And so you got to burn those things out. The second thing is you got to understand your exit. You absolutely need to know to what end am I building this business? And then lastly is that guidance system we talked about mission, vision, values. And one thing I wanted to touch upon, Jeff, that we kind of skipped over is the fact that vision is the broad long-term goal. Mission is an objective. I, I use the military analogy on this all the time because it's like, if you dropped the SEAL Team 6 behind enemy lines, and said, guys, we got a mission. We're going <laughs> to, let, let's go back to a vision. We're going we're gonna to create a democratic society throughout the entire world, right? And give freedom to the people. And you drop them behind the lines. They're going to be dropped behind lines going, okay, what are we supposed to do? That, that vision taught me nothing about what I need to do. It's a great 
feel good statement, but what am I supposed to do behind this line? And so when you talk mission statements, it's about what mission are they on? Are they going to go behind enemy lines, find Osama bin Laden and take him out? Or are they going to print leaflets and tell people that the world can be a better place if they, you know what I mean? It's like, those are very different. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different, totally different thing. And so when you think about your business and you think about mission and getting the team around a mission, be very, very specific and make sure that the mission is something that changes every few months. Because right now I'm launching a community, the captain's council. My mission for 2023 is by the end of the year, I want to have 300 active uh, members of our council. And that is my mission statement. The vision is I want founders and business operators to feel like they have a community that understands them, that they can learn and grow from. That's the vision. The mission is I want to have 300 members by this date because it will help them drive success and growth. And I can figure out my model. So I know where I'm priced right and can grow. Like that's a very specific mission that I'm on and it will only last till the end of the year. And then I'm going to create another mission that, that I want my team to help us follow through with. So before we shift into some lightning round questions, yeah, let's talk briefly about the stats. If you look at the statistics for new companies and their ability to make it, they don't fare well. Like year no. one to year three, five, 10, the ability for a company to stay in existence, the odds are completely against you. And a lot of them don't make it. So if you unpack right. those that don't make it and derail while they're trying to grow and scale, what are some of the main things that you've seen over your career? Yeah, easy. Again, and this is going to sound like I'm on repeat here. Solve a problem. Yeah. <laughs> solve a problem people want you to solve for them and know who you want to work with. I think those two things are absolutely key. I talk to people all the time that are like, my solution solves a problem for everybody. And that's when you know they've got a problem. Absolutely. They don't know what their problem is. <laughs> I've found that that the people who have been most successful in their launch and in their growth and scaling journey are the people that really do know and understand that I solve this, I don't solve that. And when you can say, I don't do that with a smile on your face and feel good that you don't solve that problem, that's when you know you're onto something. Because if I were hiring a business coach, for example, I wouldn't want a business coach that just said, oh, I help every business leader figure out how to be successful. That would make me think, okay, you're just being stupid. But if someone came to me and said, I work with founders of businesses who grow and scale to, to amount of 20, 30 million in revenue, exactly. and they find themselves having a hard time organizing their teams, and they do this, and I'd be like, okay, yeah, that's exactly what I, that's exactly where I'm at. Right. I need that. And if I'm talking to a group of 10 people and I only resonate with two of them, I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? And I think it's when you try to be the everything to everybody, that's when people know you're fake because you really can't be everything to everybody. You can't. You definitely can't. Okay, let's shift into some lightning round questions. My first question, Todd, is what are you most grateful for? My family. 
I got seven kids. They're amazing. That's awesome. And my wife still hangs out with me. And that's awesome too. <laughs> what is the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? That I don't know everything. I'm happier when I have people around me that do things better than me. Sometimes that's a tough lesson to learn, isn't it? <laughs> so hard. And my wife has helped me learn that. Absolutely. Trust, trust so-and-so. They're way better at that thing than you are. Right. A okay. lot of leadership lessons there, I'm telling you. <laughs> Huge. That You can unpack that a lot. <laughs> no doubt. Who is one person you could interview if you could, living or not? Love to interview Donald Miller. He's a hero of mine. He's a marketing genius. And I, I love Don. I'm, I will get him on my show at some point. Nice. Don, if you're listening to this, <laughs> pick up the phone and call Todd. <laughs> love Donald Miller. He's a great story brand master. Do you have a top book recommendation? Have you read any books recently you could recommend or listeners? Yeah. I mean, I, I two things that I, I go back to quite a bit is, um, you know, I go back a lot to The E-Myth. Uh, that's just one that I keep, I always go back to. High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard. Um, really powerful. I, I, I never get sick of, I, I'll re-listen to that book every year just because I, it keeps me, he's a motivational guy, but he's, he's a lot smarter than he seems from the outside. Great, Great guy. reference. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I feel like people are always giving me good advice. I feel like the best advice I've ever received is to absolutely trust people until they break it. I've learned that delegating is so much easier if you start by trusting them. And then if they don't follow through or don't execute, then you can make some judgments about whether or not you want to work with them. But give them the benefit of the doubt until they break it. And then you'll find that people work better when they feel trusted. They will perform way better when you trust them and you show them that you trust them. No question. No question. And as Patrick Lencioni so beautifully coins, it's yeah. vulnerability-based trust, right? It's not that- oh, yeah. You've shown up to work at 8 a.m. for the past two years, so I know you're going to show up at 8 a.m. tomorrow. It's that right. if I'm vulnerable and I tell you something that could make you a better leader that might be hard to hear, you're not going to use that against me. So, Todd, as we wrap up, what is the one or two most important takeaways to leave our listeners with? And then I'm going to ask you how people can find you. I would say the biggest takeaways are understand your own limitations and strategically align yourself in a way to overcome them. We talk a lot about your employees and how they can relieve burden from you by just being better at something than you, which is, I think, step one. Step two, surround yourself with other people doing what you're doing. You and I have talked about this, this captain's council thing I've got up in the corner of my screen here. I firmly believe that when founders are, are surrounding themselves with other business operators who are trying to grow and scale at the same time they are. There's a synergy. There's an energy there that just builds momentum to lead into the next question. That's where you can find me. I am putting my energy right now into building this community because I'm so passionate about founders and operators finding resources that actually help instead of dumping money into things that just are a dump. And so Find that place where you find camaraderie and you find people that aren't going to judge you 
and they have no dependency on you. I think that's another key thing. If they're depending on you for payroll, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. But if they have no dependency on you, if they're not a vendor or a client or an employee, they're going to be a truth tell you exactly what they think, right? Exactly. That's right. For sure. So that's great. So, so I, Captain's yeah, Council. Yeah. Captainscouncil.com. I know you've got a group that you run that's, that's doing the same. You solve the same problem I do. And I think that's exactly. why we, we love this so much. Yeah. And actually, my group is a little different because yours is virtual. I, I run a group in the San Francisco Bay Area. We are recruiting two more CEOs. So this yeah, is a two-person group that's, that's monthly. If you happen to be listening and you're a CEO in the San Francisco Bay Area and you're interested in joining a group of peers, you can reach out to me and I can tell you a little bit about our group. It's called The Forum. But I will say, Todd, that as an executive, a business leader, especially a CEO, it can be lonely at the top. So oh the ability to actually share openly and honestly with a group of peers can be transformational uh, for you as a leader. So massive, I think, massively I think, transformational. Yeah. What you're doing is adding a lot of value. And I think there's a huge opportunity for people to join something like this and transform the way they are doing business and they're leading their, their teams. Todd, I just want to thank you so much for your podcast and what you're doing and the value you're bringing to your to, to leaders, not, not just leaders, but all employees and anyone who's in business. And I also just want to thank you for bringing all this great wisdom to the Human Capital Podcast today. Thank you. It's my honor. Honestly, you got a great show going on here. And to all those listening, keep on listening and, uh, and make sure you're doing what you can do to, to build and grow in a positive way. Thanks for listening to Human Capital. If you like this show, please tell your friends and also take the time to go rate and review us. Human Capital is a production of Goalspan, your integrated source for performance management. Now go out and be the inspiration to other humans. And thank you for being human, kind. <laughs>